you would please turn to the book of the Gospel according to Luke. I will be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. Luke 1, 5 through 17. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Father, I ask that you allow us to see with the eyes of our heart this historical event and that you use it to encourage, to bring hope, and to cause us to pursue you in righteousness all the more to the glory of the name of Jesus. We pray. Amen. Last week, as we began our study of the book of Luke, we saw that Luke wrote it. He is Paul's close companion and friend on his missionary journeys for numbers of years. That he wrote it in probably 65 uh, A.D., that Luke had before him many written texts and stories of the Gospel. And this account comes from a very careful, studied research and with confirmation by eyewitnesses that Luke was in contact with. Now today, starting in verse 5, his narrative, his story begins. What I want to do for a few minutes first is 
just kind of look at the whole first two chapters for a moment. Because when you look at these first two chapters, especially, which are, chapter one's really long, you, you cannot avoid that Luke knows what he's doing, and he's up to something here. And what he's up to, in the way he constructs the story, seems to be clearly and purposefully contrasting John with Jesus. Showing similarity and difference. One of the major commentators, Daryl Bach, writes, quote, The narrative's major goal, these first two chapters, the narrative's major goal is to give an overview of God's plan by showing the relationship of Jesus to John. John is the forerunner who announces the fulfillment's approach. But Jesus is the fulfillment. In every way, Jesus here is superior to John. John is born of barrenness. Jesus is born of a virgin. John is great as a prophet before the Lord. Jesus is great as the promised Davidic ruler. John paves the way. Jesus is the way. End quote. In other words, as you look at these first two chapters, and you see Luke is just flipping from scene to scene, and he's going back and forth. What I mean is, just picture it like a screenplay or a stage play. Here's act one, or here's scene one that we're going to see this morning. The angel comes and announces the birth of John. Scene two, the angel goes to Mary, announces the birth of Jesus. Scene three, Mary travels down to Judea to hang out for a while with Mary. And you get Mary's praise of God's salvation and grace. Next scene. The birth of John the Baptist. And the praise of Zechariah, his dad, about this grace. Then, the birth of Jesus. And you've got angelic beings glorifying God for it. He's doing this purposefully to compare them and to contrast them. Both are announced by the angel Gabriel. The angel gives the name to both parents. He's going to be called John. He's going to call his name Jesus. And there's contrast. John is born of people and a woman who's barren. Now they're old. It's, it's, they're both miraculous. This is not supposed to happen. And then Jesus is born of a young virgin. John's name that the angel gives is God is gracious. Jesus means deliverer, the Savior. John is there to prepare the way for the Lord. And Jesus is the Lord. See, John's purposeful here. I mean, Luke is very purposeful here in what he's doing. He's, he's writing, as we saw last week, he's got an audience in mind. He's got struggling 
Gentiles who are thinking about believing in Jesus or may have come and they got a lot of questions, but he's got struggling Gentiles like Theophilus in mind. And what he's doing as he begins his story and saying, I'm putting this stuff in here and I'm putting it in here in this manner. So I'm going to write my screenplay for you, Theophilus, is to say, this Jesus whom you're believing in, the whole message is God's sovereign control over everything. In other words, John, I mean, Theophilus, we don't just mean the last couple years of Jesus' life in His ministry, in His death. We mean from the very get-go, God was purposeful in this. It's probably got to be a little difficult for a, a Roman official like Theophilus, who's asked to believe in this obscure, Jewish, lower-class carpenter, slash became teacher, who was (laughs) executed as a criminal under Rome. Believe in Him is the message. Embrace Him as your Savior, Roman official, as your King. Okay. There, there, there's a stretch there, and this is probably going on in the back of Luke's mind. I think that's why he starts where he starts at the beginning, and in the way he does, like no, none of the other gospel writers do. He's saying there is a sovereign God of the universe and He controlled both John the Baptist and Jesus' conception and birth. He predicted it. He sent His angel to do it and He caused what was impossible in both cases to actually happen. Only the Creator, Theophilus, could bring about before it happens. This is going to be you old people who when you were 20 and 30 you were barren. You're going to give birth to a son. And he is the fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament who is the forerunner. He's saying only God can predict it. And then cause it to happen. John and Jesus, he's saying, are not just some uh, superior religious people that one day, look at this carpenter. Or before that, look at his cousin John. Yeah, I'm going to choose them for these ministries. He's saying God purposed and planned this from before the ages began. And He brought it about miraculously from the beginning. Because both of these births, they're humanly impossible. And Luke is demonstrating what actually happened in order to demonstrate to Theophilus that God is in absolute control of these obscure parents. And He brought the centrality and purpose of all existence to come about through them. Let's look at the text now. In verses 5 to 7, 
here's the, here's the screenplay writer. He's going to do some character development before he gets to the scene. He wants you to understand who, who they are before we see what's going to be happening in the temple. So he writes in 5-7, to seven, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So he sets it up. He says, this is historical. This happened at a particular time. It happened when Herod, Herod the Great, was reigning still. Now, these were very dark times for God's people, the Jews, for the church of that day. Herod the Great, he was a wicked, evil, nasty ruler. He got his commission to reign over Judea, which, if you know your Bible map, it doesn't merely mean that word, Judea down south. It means Judea and Samaria, Galilee, and up further north, large parts of Syria up there. He reigned over that whole region. He claimed to be a Jew. He was in name only. He started to reign in 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. when he died. He got that commission, did I say, from Mark Anthony? In 40 B.C. He was so wicked, he killed, over the years, numbers of family members just to protect his place. Five days before he died, he had his own son murdered. It's the same guy who had all the babies in Bethlehem two years and younger, the boys, killed. He's a wicked guy. Luke says, here's the story begins, and it happens right here at the end of Herod's reign. We know he dies in 4 B.C. So these angel parents, 4, probably maybe 5 B.C. they happen. Now, pick up again in verse 5. In the days of Herod the king of Judea, it's dark time, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So here he pictures, he says, get the scene. These, this is married couple. They're both Jews. They're both from the priestly line of Aaron, Levi. Okay, now get this. What's going on? He's a priest. What does that mean here at this time? Within Israel, there were somewhere around eighteen to 20,000 Priests like Zechariah. Those priests were divided up into 24 divisions. You can see this in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. It lists all the divisions. Zechariah's division of Abijah 
is the eighth one in that list in the Old Testament. Each division then is broken up into smaller groups so that when they're on duty, each group takes one of those days. Now, that's the other key here. The days. Okay, here he's a priest. What does he do with his life? Two times a year, his division is on duty in Jerusalem in the temple. Each time is just a one-week period. So out of 52 weeks a year, they're doing priestly stuff two weeks. 50 weeks, they're not. They're earning a living, whatever they're doing. So out of those two weeks a year, we're in one of the weeks right here that he's going to pick up. Now, look at verse 6. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What the heck? Now, this does not mean that Elizabeth and Zechariah were sinless. It doesn't mean they were not affected by the fall of Adam. To say that they were righteous and they were blameless walking in all the commands of the Lord. Any more than when you read the Psalms of people like David, whose sins are clear. And the psalmists are always talking about the righteous as opposed to the wicked. By righteous, what he is getting at here, he's saying that there is a kind of carrying of oneself in life in general with Elizabeth and Zechariah that is the fruit of their heart toward the Lord. It's the fruit of a, of a, a, a godly fear of the Lord. A fruit of pursuing the Lord their God. And it does have something to do with the way ultimately people may perceive them. They walk with the Lord. They're not wicked. They're not like untrustworthy. They were godly, righteous, not sinless. Now, he does use the term. Here's a fruit. Walking, he says, blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. Now, That does not mean that they did not have a sinful disposition that they had to battle. Anymore than it means that for any Christian today. No. It doesn't mean that they kept the command, for instance. It's a a real big one here when it says He kept all the commands. It doesn't mean they kept the command, love the Lord. With all your heart and soul, mind, strength. Perfectly. It does mean, though, they love the Lord. Genuinely. Are, Are you getting me? No one other than the one man, Jesus Christ, has ever kept perfectly that great command. Thus far. It doesn't mean that Zechariah never broke the commandment, Thou shalt not 
covet. <laughs> he may have refrained from actually taking something that wasn't his, but that desire that wells up at times in our sinful hearts, and Zechariah is called covetous desire for what someone else has. It doesn't mean that. But walking blamelessly, the text says. You know what? Paul talks that way too. And Paul, as any Christian, certainly was not without sin. Certainly did not have a battle with sin. Paul made it clear in Romans 7 of his battle with sin. But listen, he uses this word. I want you to hear how Paul uses blameless. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, Paul writes, Christians, do all things without grumbling or questioning in order that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted world or generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, what are you saying, Paul? That Christians can actually be perfect down here without sin, without a battle, without needing to repent? I don't think it's so at all. But there's a disposition with people like Zechariah or the Philippians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who have been born again, who when they sin, there's a repentant life. It means that they were righteous and walking blamelessly. That, In other words, wickedness, underhandedness, deception, the way they did life and treated other people wasn't an, an uninterrupted pattern of their life. It was a life that said, I hate that in me. Like King David. And would repent and would turn. But that produces a pattern of life like Paul's calling for. You know what? There's a way in which you carry yourself. There are people you know, you know, you can't say that they're blameless. They just become untrustworthy. Family members, people in the workplace. He's saying, don't be one of those. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct among you believers. Really, Paul? Yeah, I think in the way he means it, yeah, really. Does it mean sinless? It doesn't mean that, you know, he slipped with his tongue and he might not have had to gone to a brother over there in Philippi and say, you know what, will you forgive me? But it is that which is the blameless. It's that kind of life. It's that kind of of introspection by the Holy Spirit that a person's carrying themselves. So we can see it in the New Testament. So when he says here of Zechariah, I think, okay, they are. These are just not your normal everyday people. God is working on them. And there's a particular kind of life in the way they carry themselves. They were righteous, walking blamelessly in all things. Got the scene? Now verse 7. But they had no child. 
because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We'll see the next time. Quickly. For them, this meant this. They lived, and especially she, feeling reproach from people. Wonder, wonder what kind of hidden sin they have. But this was part of a theology of a lot of first century Jews. That's, that's why they came up. <laughs> Look at my son. <laughs> or he's blind. Who sinned? Okay, you're barren? A Jewish woman barren? What have you done? And she's going to later say, you've taken away my reproach among people. Okay. So, he sets the scene. She was barren when she was 18. When she was 30. When she was 40. She's probably 55, 65, I don't know. Now, it's impossible. So, now, before we put the DVD in and click play and, and look at this scene here, there's two more significant points to be made to set up what's going to happen. God has not spoken to the people like He used to do through the prophets. He has not done that in 430 years. That's a long time. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Franklin and Washington and Hamilton and all those guys in the founding of our country, that was 234 years ago. Go back. Go, let's go way back then. You know, the kids, it seems like an eternity ago, right? Go back that far. Okay, now that you're there, hang out with those guys and go back 200 more years. This is how long it's been that God spoke to the people. What has been going on for those hundreds of years? Not nothing. There's a lot been going on. There have been theologies of the Jews, even competing theologies, even competing eschatologies, waiting for the end time, the Messiah, David's greater son, etc., to come. And they had differing views, and they were based on God's holy word through the prophets, where God had made some clear statements about one from the loins of King David is going to come. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And they're waiting for Him to come and to deliver them. To deliver Israel, who now, for centuries, has not had freedom. For centuries have been occupied and subjugated by foreign powers. And now this is at the end of a wicked ruler in their, in their particular part of the world who had the authority from Rome named Herod the Great. So, gotta get that, you gotta feel that for what happens. One more thing. This day we're gonna read about is not a normal 
priestly service day for Zechariah. He's an old man now. He's been doing his one week, two times a year with his group of people for years. He has never, ever gone behind the curtain where you got the lampstand, you got the table of incense, and the table for showbread, and to offer incense. He's never had the opportunity to do it before. The reason we know that is you're only allowed to do it one time in your life. This is his time. Of those who haven't done it, they got list. Let's draw straws. Or throw rocks, however they're going to do it, throw dice. That's what they mean by that. Cast lots, and <laughs> Zechariah got the longest straw. Listen to how the commentator Bach describes this scene when one goes in there. Quote, The chosen priest went into the holy place where the altar of incense, the lampstand, and the showbread were found. The priest offered the incense with its sweet savor on behalf of the people. The incense was a symbol of intercession, of prayer, proceeding up on behalf of the people to God. And we can see this in the Psalms too. So here's the scene. This is his job that he's going to do this one time of his whole life on behalf of Israel, he's the representative keeping the incense, placing new, because you always got to keep that up. You always want the symbol of prayer of the people, of intercession, who are saying something like this. Fulfill your promise, the people are saying. The incense is saying, fulfill your promise of sending the son of David, the king, to deliver your people, Israel. Okay? Click play. Verse 8. Here we go. Now, while he was serving his priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So you got the massive temple in Jerusalem. You got the courtyard where you got thousands of Jews. It's the offering of the incense time, and they're praying outside. And then you got inside with the labor and all that, and the priest can work in there. But then you got this first big curtain where he would go. Not the Holy of Holies where the high priest went only once a year where the Ark of the Covenant is, but that was the other curtain back there. But this curtain where you got the candlestick, okay, you got the incense table and you got the, the showbread. And it's his turn. This has got to be the most intense day of his life. To go do this. For a person who believes in God like he does, who walks righteously before him and knows this is what God has commanded and he's not playing games like we should never play games with a symbol. 
of Holy Communion. He's not playing games here with the incense. On behalf of the people, He today is the representative of God. Save your people. Deliver your people. And then, as He's in there, nervously doing His priestly thing, adding more incense, getting the fire to make sure it's going to burn again. It's probably the evening one. They did this twice a day, morning and evening incense offering. Most likely, it's the evening with thousands of people praying outside. And He's just in itself. Got to be a little nerve-wracking. Suddenly, an angel appears and breaks the silence of over 400 years. Verse 11, And then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. What a picture. The only time in his entire life, and he's old now, that he gets to be the one priest who goes in there and offers the incense on behalf of the people, and he gets the living daylight scared out of him. Because he looks up, and then there was a creature, a being, standing between the lampstand and the table of incense. And the word troubled with the ESV, see, you, you could take that to mean like, huh, that's kind of troubling. It's not what the word means in Greek. It's the word terasso. It means it frightened him. It, it means he was deeply, emotionally disturbed by it. And then he adds, and fear fell upon. I think that's what happens. <laughs> if a person is actually addressed by an angel from God directly, I think you fall down in fear, like John did, as if dead. That's what I think happens. It's funny in our day, I've been around a lot of type of Christianity, and sometimes people talk so flippantly, and I've been around people talking flippantly about the Lord appeared to me. I've heard, okay. I, and I remember Pastor John MacArthur one time, says he was having a conversation with a guy, he's telling the story, oh yeah, the Lord appears to me all the time. Not, not an angel of the Lord. Of the Lord. And he's telling a story, while I was shaving and then the Lord appeared to me and we're talking away. And I think MacArthur's comment or question really gets to the heart of something more true. He said, and you kept shaving? Okay. This is terrifying. These are not little fat babies with wings. These are not medieval pictures of angels. And there's a recognition that he's seeing not a human being, but an angel of the Lord. 
this is one of the reasons the four times in Luke's writing where an angel appears, the first thing the angel says is, calm down. Or, fear not. Okay? But this was, don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. It's okay. That's what he does here. He says, the reason you're not to fear, Zechariah, is because your prayer has been answered. You see it there, verse 13. But the angel said, so not only does he see the angel, the angel speaks, and the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Because, that's what the word for means, because your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. God is gracious. So, what prayer, just real quickly, I think, hmm, does he mean that Zechariah went behind the curtain and as he's offering the incense of prayer, God, please give us a baby? I don't think so. The reason why is because of his response. We'll see next time. He's not believing this. This is what are you talking about? I'm too old. But I think like any couple wants babies and they're not having them. They prayed for years for child. But now they're old. So I think Okay, you've got to hold it there. There's something there. But also, remember, he is praying, and John on purpose, I mean, Luke on purpose, lets us know why he's doing this. There's multitudes, there's thousands in the courtyard at that time praying. What are they praying? Give him a baby. They're praying for the, the king, David's son, the deliverer, to come. And the message of Gabriel the angel bears this out. Because he says, in other words, bears what out? I think it's an answer to both. The prayers that you and your wife have wanted for years is true. And what the nation wants is true. Because he's going to say, you're going to get your son. It's going to make you happy. And the nation is going to get the forerunner. To king. Jesus. Look at it. Verse 14 to 17. He goes on, the angel speaks, and you will have joy, Zechariah. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at John's birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord's, the Lord a people prepared. So, Zechariah and many 
will rejoice about this child, says the angel. The child's mission, John the Baptist's mission, will be he's going before the Lord in the presence of God, the Lord God. It's been 400 and something years since they've had one of these. His mission will be, as he goes before the Lord, to turn the hearts of Israel, the people, back to Yahweh, to the Lord their God. His mission will be to prepare those people for the coming of the Lord. The manner of His ministry is clear. He will be like one of the great Hebrew prophets of old, Elijah. Now we don't get the miracles of Elijah with John, but we get Elijah's message, his message of repentance and turn from Baal to serve the living God. And I think it is this that the Old Testament is picking up on as as the prophet Malachi, one of the last prophets, of the Old Testament before God stopped speaking, spoke. He says, I'm going to send my Elijah before the great day of the Lord. So He's going to turn the hearts to the Lord their God and the hearts of the Father to their kids. If, I mean, if you think about that, there's this vertical horizontal. It's the two great commands. John the Baptist's message is turn to the love the Lord your God in true repentance vertically. And fathers, turn your hearts towards the children. That's horizontal. And then maybe towards their friends. And then maybe towards others and how you live. And John preached that way. He preached, turn your heart toward God. Soldiers, stop manipulating people. Tax collectors, this is what you do. Stop cheating people for your own gain. I asked him, he told him, you got a vertical, you got a horizontal. He's the perfect forerunner to the message of Jesus. So before I close, let's just think then about a couple things, I think. Well, what is this teaching us? Zechariah and Elizabeth were obscure, godly, God-fearing people. And God sovereignly used them to bring the forerunner to Jesus. We live today more than any time in human history in a culture where if you even interview, go to high schools and interview kids, You will hear, what do you want to be? I don't care, I just want to be famous. 
for what? Well, it can be for discovering a cure for cancer or it can be for murdering a bunch of kids at school. We live in a culture of electronics where Facebook, Twitter, if you want, I'm not saying everyone does this, and there's a place that the church should use all these things. You got me there? But there's a place where I feel more significant. Look at, I just took a left turn over here, and this is what I felt. People hear me? And, and there's something in our sinful nature. That I just want to feel significant. And I think there's a message in this story where that is not where true significance lay at all. Most famous people, just turn on a TV and flip through the channels and do it for 24 hours if you can stomach it. Most famous people are not significant at all. And very few significant people, I'm just talking not even as a church or even being rights for, I'm just talking about in the world. Most significant people are not famous. I can just prove it if I would ask you to name some of the most significant people in your life. For most, you would not have you wouldn't fail to name your obscure mom or dad or a third grade teacher or a college professor or something that hardly anyone knows. In this text, true significance is found through these two obscure, childless, reproached people. Verse 6 says, They were both righteous before God. And that's what counted. And it just happened in God's sovereign purposes. He used those obscure, going about their life in obscurity, living before God, to bring the revival of all revivals in the history of Israel. I hope that there are many of us in the church world today that pray for and desire and want true revival in the church. I don't mean like what I was raised in where you put banners in front of your church revival meeting Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, 7 p.m., this week, no. You, no this, this is, I'm talking about revival that human beings cannot conjure up. All they can do is do what they've been called to do and God may sovereignly move to walk righteously before Him. I mean God's sovereign revival that we cry out for like which happened in the 1740s in America called the First Great Awakening. It wasn't that there weren't any Christians. There were genuine Christians plugging away, preaching the Bible, preaching Scripture. Churches are filled with baptized, communion-taking sinners who have never been born again. 
And then God sovereignly did something that the world couldn't deny. And it, and, and it was no trick. It wasn't up to marketing or anything. It just, God was all of a sudden showing mercy upon the church and upon the society in which the church dwelt. And untold thousands upon thousands of people's lives were turned upside down. By the same message they were hearing for years. I'm talking about a revival that is the revival that is rooted in doctrine. That is the text of Scripture. That by the Holy Spirit brings genuine conviction of sin and consciousness and life that makes those of the church first diligent and aware and repentant. And it brings a deep passion, not mere intellectualism, but I see the goodness and the joy of this message. And it says, God, would you sovereignly glorify your name in our time, in our geographical locations. That time. Well, that's up to God. To one degree or another that that happens, it's up to God. But the encouragement of this text is what happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They lived in dark times of the church. If we use Israel as the church of that day, not just with Herod, the leadership of the church was all screwed up. All you got to do is read the rest of this gospel. The church, Israel, the religious people, the people of the book were messed up. Religion was still going on. And God used these two obscure, righteous people living in life towards the Lord. And broke into that situation. And here's what I think. I don't think God just rolled the dice. It doesn't matter who I use. These people who love me and fear me and walk righteously. It doesn't matter. Oh, these little you know, people who have no heart for it. doesn't matter. I just use anybody. I don't think that's a lesson here. I think the lesson here and why he says it, they were both righteous. That is the foundation through which God does choose to sovereignly act in work. In the first great awakening, it wasn't as if the church were totally off its rocker. And then God just changed everything by His Spirit one day. We've, we've had fake movements like that in the last number of years. With numbers of the leaders or pastors that God used in the First Great Awakening, they weren't changing what they had been preaching for years. It's just that people were getting ears to hear it now. The foundation is that it's okay to be an Elizabeth or a Zechariah or an obscure person. God is the one who sovereignly works 
And when He does to little degrees, like He has this last week of your life, hopefully, or to greater degrees, like the first great awakening, or like what He did in sending John the Baptist, He often does that through normal people. Ordinary people. Not necessarily famous people, whom He also may use. It's okay to be Zechariah and Elizabeth and pursue God with all your heart and what you think He's calling you to do now. You're not insignificant. The precondition for John the Baptist, I think the text teaches, God had by His sovereignty, these people not being able to have a baby. And that was painful. And it was painful for decades. Yet those people did not turn from Him. Those two walked righteously and blamelessly in obscurity before Him. The precondition for the revival of sending John the Baptist or revival in a church or in the church at large today is many ordinary, obscure people. There may be a John the Baptist or two or three, but there will be thousands of ordinary, obscure people. Because God wants them to be ordinary and obscure, walking righteously before Him. As they do, they don't wait for revival. They walk righteously. They make meals for people going through chemotherapy. They try to give an ear to the heart of a brother or sister in Christ or a lost sinner. And they give their time they give their money. They look for ways to overflow in love. That's the foundation and the precondition. The call of the church through this story this morning is to be vigilant. Because there's a message that we see here. We're going to see more as the book unfolds. Why is this baby John coming? To say to the people and to constantly say to the church, turn your hearts to the Lord. And then starting here, dads, turn your hearts also to your kids. Horizontally to others. Let's pray. Holy Father, the God of the angel, Gabriel. The God of John the Baptist. The God of the grace of the message of repentance. The God who sent a forerunner, which means you sent the King, Jesus. Yet means you sent the Holy Spirit. 
continue to work on us. Obscure. Ordinary. Christ-loving. Miracle wrought in our hearts. People, bring great encouragement to your people, I pray. As we learn to see the power and significance of your work in our ordinary lives of walking righteously in Jesus Christ, our great Savior.